The coming of one important, the coming, right? And so when we talk about Advent, so here's the point. For those of you who have not been here at Vintage, we've been talking about Advent, and it, it literally means the coming of Jesus. And you're like, that's great. We celebrate the coming of Jesus in Christmas. But it's really, really, really important to understand that the beginning of Advent had nothing to do with the first coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. The origin of Advent was about celebrating the second coming of Jesus. It was about living in preparation that he's coming again, right? And so as we then talk about the season of Advent this morning of talking about the joy we find in Christ, it's not the joy we found because he came. We have joy because he came, he's here, he's coming again. And it's really, really important in the season of Advent, the season of Christmas, to not just celebrate the day that he came that we sing about, Right. But that we recognize he's here and that he's coming again. And the second coming is no different than the first coming. People were in great need of Jesus and longing to be with the Messiah. They wanted that. And we want that. We have it different. He's with us. But would you all agree that there is a deeper way of having him with us that we're looking forward to? That we get to the day we sit with him face to face when he breaks, when all sin and all death immediately is gone because he's come back. We look forward to that day. And so Christmas is more about looking for the second coming of Christ than it is celebrating that he came as a baby. That's the season of Advent. We have the thrill of hope, don't we? The thrill of hope of Jesus. That he came, he is present, and he's coming again. It's this crazy dynamic that, that he's come, but not yet fully. That's what we say. This may be language that's new to you, but we talk about the kingdom of God. And, and all the kingdom of God means is God is the king, right, of his kingdom. He's the ruler. The language that they used back in the day was that he was Lord, which meant that everything, you know, in the, in the language of Lion King, everything the light touches belongs to us, right? That's the kingdom. Everything the light touches belongs to God, right? And so you have this dynamic that he is the king. He is the Lord. And we have this thrill of hope that he's, Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 1, he says, Go preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what that simply means is that when Jesus came as king, as in the Lord, he came and says, hey, I am here. The kingdom has come. But, but the thing is this, and this is really important for, for theologically speaking, because this actually is part of the answer of why bad things still happen to good people, why there is still suffering and pain in the world. Jesus has come but he has not yet come fully. And that's this dynamic piece that we live in a world where Jesus is present. He has saved you, right? He is moving in power, but we're still around sin. We're still around death. We're still around suffering, right? We've all experienced that. It's still happening. So what, it, what we say then, but the kingdom, is it has come but not yet fully. That's why we're looking for the. That's why we're. That's why we celebrate Advent. The thrill of hope that He's coming again, right? Because when He comes again, He comes with the fullness of His kingdom, and then hell is broken forever, to never have any level of influence ever again. And so we live in a in a world where God is present. But he has not yet with his kingdom come fully. 
And so we still live. That's why we say we are pilgrims. Scripture says we are pilgrims and strangers living in a strange land. This is not our home. We look forward to something else. So we listen. So as Christians, honestly, we should always feel a level of discomfort in this world because it's not our home. We wait with confidence, hoping the thrill of hope that he's going to come again. This is what we talk about in Advent. And so this thrill of hope, we said last week that Jesus, he came to be our substitute. We said this. Well, you all know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, the enemy, Satan, the great adversary who hates God and hates you, hates all of humanity, came and literally in the moment spoke and deceived humanity and in deceiving humanity and them them being disobedient to god sin entered the world and in that moment of deception in in that moment the enemy began to get a stronghold and a stranglehold on all of humanity and brought us into an enemy camp and put us in chains In Genesis 3, all of humanity now lived under the rule and the reign of an illegitimate, an illegitimate leader, Satan. If that's not comfortable for you to talk about Satan, the devil, just call him the enemy. But he's present and he's real. And so in that moment, the enemy took over and everything he was about just infiltrated the world. We called it sin. And all those things, pain and suffering and worry and doubt and anxiety and all those things, all of a sudden just infiltrated the world. And so Jesus in that moment says, now you have sin in your life. And the the reality is this. This is the substitution piece I said. The reality is this. Biblically speaking, God can't relate to those who are in sin. He just can't. He literally cannot do it. Because he is just, because he is holy, because he is perfectly 100% pure. We watched Mary Poppins last night. Jesus is much more practically perfect in every way, right? And he really is. That's Jesus, this essence of perfection. And he literally, he literally, because he's perfect and holy, he cannot relate with creation now that's been marred by sin. And so there has to be death. There has to be blood. There has to die for that. And so Jesus comes and says, I'll be your substitute. You're in all in sin. I will die in your place. Take the consequences of sin. I will take the pain of sin. I will take, I will take, and I will take all of that upon me and I will die in your place. I will be your substitute. I will take the suffering that's due to you. I will take it. And you now can have a relationship with God for eternity. Jesus is our substitute. We said, that's the good news, right? That's the good news that most of us have grown up with in church. Jesus came. He died on the cross for our sins so we can live with him for eternity, right? That's what you grew up with is the gospel. Let me let let you in a little secret. This is really interesting. Do you know that was not the gospel message for the first thousand years of the church? Like, it's really interesting. They believed that. That was a primary tenet of faith, but it was not the gospel for them. If you said, what's the gospel? What's the, what's the good news? You know what they would say? Jesus defeated Satan and gave us victory over him. 
That for the first thousand years up until Anselm, the great church father and theologian who began to talk about Jesus, the suffering servant who took our place for the first basically a thousand to eleven hundred years of the church. The gospel and the good news of Jesus was that of Jesus, the victor, Christus victor, Christ has saved us by defeating Satan and setting us free and releasing us from chains, from chains of darkness. We see it in Hebrews chapter 2. This is the language of the good news. The church celebrated for the first 1,100 years, 1,000 years. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. All, all he's saying is, all, the, all he's saying is Jesus became a man. Okay? Jesus became a man so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so it's interesting to me because what I see here is this. It's not that Jesus is just my substitute, although that is the gospel message. It is good news for us. But it's also that he then defeated Satan, crushed his head, and set us free. He didn't just say, hey, I declare I die in your place. He died in our place. And then all of a sudden, the enemy looks, sitting behind his gate, and he goes, oh, crap, here comes Jesus. Right? That's what he said. And all of a sudden, the gates broke down, Jesus came in and began breaking chains. He probably just went freedom and chains fell up. That's what he did to, to Paul, right? And Peter and Paul and Mary, I don't know, right? In the, in the, in the, Peter, no, Peter and Paul in, the, in prison, right? Set them free, broke the chains. It was beautiful. He sets them free. So he substitutes, he comes and dies, and then he walks into the areas of darkness and sets us free and then leads us out in freedom. Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who went into hell and set you free. This is the good news. It is the thrill of hope. Think about, listen, just before we dive too far, think about just for your personal life. Think about all the broken places. Think about all the darkness. Think about all the issues that you face in relationships. Think about all the issues that you face, the things that you don't share with anyone, right? The things that happen like right here inside of your own mind, the darkness and the depravity that defines every single one of us, right? That we are afraid to go tell people because of all of this stuff. And Jesus says, yes, I saw it. I died for it. In fact, I went into hell and I set you free from it so that Satan could no longer have authority in your life. He watched Satan cower with no hope of defeating him as he came in. Jesus is the victor. The great promise of the Old Testament is found in Psalm 110, verse 1, right? We said hope, listen, those of you who haven't been here, we said hope is always birthed out of a promise. 
hope, this great confidence that God's going to move is always birthed out of a promise from Scripture. And the promise of, of Psalm 110.1, it says this, the Lord says to my Lord, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In fact, you may not know this, but this verse, chapter 1 of Psalm 110, is one of the most quoted Old Testament scriptures found in the New Testament. Everybody loved this verse. Everybody quoted it. Everybody knew it. They knew the promise that a day was coming when the enemy would be defeated and made Jesus' footstool. They were looking forward to it. They couldn't wait for the promise. And so they began quoting it in the New Testament again and again and again and again and again because they knew it had happened. It was the good news. Jesus defeated Satan. Woohoo! This is Christmas. This is the thrill of hope, right? This is beautiful picture of the work of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. He was our substitute, and he was victorious. This is the good news, the central celebration of the church for the first 1,000 to 1,100 years of our existence as the church. They loved this. This is beautiful. It is huge. Listen, Satan and everything which he and with which he had enslaved humanity had been defeated. Victory had been granted to the followers of Jesus, the illegitimate ruler who held humanity in misery, held us in sin, and bondage had been crushed. And so as we come and we celebrate Advent, I wonder how aware we are of the influence of the enemy. How aware we are of him in our own lives, in our own families today. I wonder today where we've given him a foothold in our life and we've given him authority without us even knowing it, but the things that we do, the things we say, by the things that we think. I wonder where the enemy has an illegitimate, listen, I wonder where, and you should wonder too, that's why I'm saying it, I wonder where the enemy has an illegitimate hold on something in your life that you were unaware of, and Jesus says, I've already come in and I've broken the chains off of you. He has no authority in your life. Let's look at our Colossians chapter 2, because this is Advent, guys. Listen, it's Advent, the coming of Jesus. It's the thrill of hope that we have confidence that the enemy is already his, therefore our footstool. And we don't want him to have control and authority in our lives, do we? We don't want to go back into hell. We want to live with Jesus free from these things that he already set us free from. It is the thrill of hope. We have confidence in the promise that he's already, through the cross and the resurrection, set us free. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. I encourage you the whole chapter. 
talks about the power of Jesus in the first three quarters of the first chapter. Then it comes and just gives some like other kind of information about Jesus and life of Jesus. And then it comes down in the second half of Colossians chapter 2. It starts talking about the work of Jesus again. And it says this, and you, talk about you, this is you, okay? And you who were dead in your trespasses, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision, which meant you weren't a part of the people of God, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God, listen, God made alive together with him, not apart from him, with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, which are sins, right? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. All that saying is this, there were consequences for your sin. Jesus set you free from them, right? He set them aside and he nailed them to the cross. That was our message from last week. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus took our place. He took our consequences upon himself. He took our suffering. Verse 15 is now Christus Victor, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the one who won the battle. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him, in himself, in Christ. I love this. Paul shifts this language to talk about this triumphal nature of the life of Jesus. I'm going to read it again. I want you to see it, right? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. It's really important here to recognize. The only theologians, this is important, the only theologians who do not think that rulers and authorities meant demonic principalities are just simply those who don't believe in demons, all right. Every other one recognizes every theologian. This represents spiritual rulers, spiritual authority, demonic, right? Satan, right? And so they put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him through the, through the cross, through the resurrection, right? And so what I want you to do is three are three primary verbs here in these verses that relate to this victory that Jesus has brought to us. Number one, he disarmed. He disarmed, disarmed, this beautiful word, he disarmed, he disarmed them by taking their weapons out of their hands. He, listen, you've seen this in movies, right? You see it where all of a sudden they're fighting, fighting, and all of a sudden they realize they're surrendered, so they put their hands, they drop their guns, and they put their, they put their hands up in the air. Right. And what do they do? They come over and take all of their weapons and put them in a big pile. They disarm. They take away. He take. They take away what their. They take away their their power to kill. So in this moment right here, right, Jesus disarms them by taking their weapons out of their hands. Right. He took the weapons and he disempowered them. This is really important because you go, but Satan still has so much power. And I would say. He only, listen, today the enemy's greatest weapon is simply the power of illusion. He has no real power. He only has the power of illusion. He uses it to delude us into believing he has absolute power, that he is an ultimate, an ultimate comparable enemy, right? An ultimate enemy to, to God. He's even with God. I mean, listen, I said this a hundred times. I'll say it again. This is something really, really simple, but 
Like, have you ever watched, I don't watch them because I just think they're stupid, but have you ever seen any of those movies about, like, the demonic and the paranormal that's out there today? Like, have you ever seen those movies that they literally make Satan look like he's powerful? They bring some, like, lame, like, pastor-type figure into a movie, and he has no power in these demonic films? Do you think that's not on purpose to make us, for the enemy, to create a delusion that he has more power than he actually does? He has, the, he has the power of delusion. He makes you think that he's worthy to be worshipped. Oh, listen, this is important. The only power the enemy has in our lives is the power that we give him. The only power he has in our life is the power that we give him. If, the, if he can trick us into believing he has power, that the darkness that they sell us, the hopelessness they portray are real, and the shiny objects of lust for power and money and sex will actually satisfy, and let, in that moment, right, in that moment, if we begin to believe him and set our gaze upon those things, then in that moment he regains power and he regains influence. The only power he has is the power of delusion and illusion to make you believe something that's not true. Fear is him saying God's not in control. I don't care what a fear it is. I don't care if it's a fear of losing your child, fear of losing your finances, fear of crashing in an airplane, fear of dying in a car, a fear of spiders, a fear of living your life alone for the rest of your life. I don't care what your fear is. It's a delusion wrought by the enemy to make you think God can't protect you, guard you, love you, and be enough for you. It's a delusion. All the works of the enemy are delusion. They are shiny objects. I mean, money is power. Have you heard that phrase, money is power? Lie. Lie straight from the enemy. It's not true. There is one ultimate power, and his name is Yahweh, God, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He's the one who has power. No one else. Money is not power. Men are bound by, by lust and sex for whatever reason, and it's strictly a lie from the enemy to say it gratifies and satisfies. Jesus alone gratifies and satisfies and puts us in marriages with women who, said, who, who he has put there to gratify and satisfy us. We don't need anything else. He has been, the enemy has been disarmed, meaning he truly has no power or authority over us in any area of life except where we give him power and influence. It's a thrill of hope, my friends, that Jesus came to set us free and to grant us victory so that those things would no longer have power and authority over our life, but the enemy stirs. He ha- Listen, he doesn't have power except what we give to him, right? He doesn't have authority in your life. He still has a level of power, but it's all in delusion and illusion. We have to live in that reality. Number two, he made a public spectacle. Verse 15, made a public spectacle. We all understand as we've seen it in movies, right, in ancient times after a victory in war, there'd be a triumphal procession of the victorious general home from the wars, right? He'd be leading his captives, and he would have like this train of the spoils of war, the procession behind him in the streets. And everyone goes, celebrate, woo! This is what we have right here, right? This is what Jesus has done. He literally has made a public spectacle. He comes with the cross and the resurrection and says, do you see what I just did? I just walked into the camp. I just came down, bam, broke his back. 
right there. I mean, Jesus did that, guys. I just want you to know, guys. He didn't just come in and go, power. He came and goes, bam. He just came with the elbow, bam, and brought it down. It was awesome. Ultimate UFC fighting. I'm just telling you, Jesus, right? And it was great. And he like, came in the moment and brought the noise. He came in and made a spectacle of him. He said, watch what, listen, do you know that the resurrection was just to kind of just show exactly how much power he had? Not only am I going to die and break your back, I'm going to raise from the dead. <laughs> Bam, take that. Bam. Made a spectacle of him. And Jesus, in that moment that exposes the works of the enemy, he exposes the lies. He exposes the effects of the enemy. He reveals his own power and authority over them and says, you don't have this. I'm exposing them, so don't be bound by them ever again. Jesus is the victor. And the third thing we see is that he triumphed over I love that. He triumphed over Jesus. Listen, Jesus came in the moment and he triumphed. He had victory in the moment. It wasn't like he triumphed in his own mind. No, he literally triumphed over the enemy. He did this. Listen, this is important. This is really important for us, especially as it relates to us defining where we find our own power and how we even define power. He didn't. In the moment, right? He did not do, he did not express power of triumph by beating the enemy at his own game, resorting to brute force or stunning, dis, or a stunning display of power. He didn't, listen, he didn't wage a direct or a violent or frontal attack on the enemy. He overcame with power, but not power in the way we think. He expressed power through obedience to the Father. He expressed power. The act of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Power. He expressed power through his own meekness. Meekness is an interesting word that you don't necessarily use all the time because it just sounds strange, right? But meekness does not equal weakness. Meekness is Jesus, God, coming as an infant, then as a toddler, then an adolescent, going through puberty, then being an awkward teenager, right, and then becoming a man. See, meekness is power that I restrain for the purpose of salvation for someone else. That's meekness. I have all the power in the world, but I'm going to restrain. I'm going to hold it back for the purpose of suffering so that others may simply live. Do you see that, right? Jesus comes and he suffers He expresses his suffering love. Every act of Jesus exhibited in the lives of those he ministered to, whether it was healing, deliverance, the feeding of the hungry, the clothing of the naked, the calming of the storm, had a unique purpose. It was to wage war against the enemy and win the battle. This is the interesting thing about power. There is no way to express power than the way that Jesus expressed it. And that's really important. The only way, biblically speaking, that we can wage war in a Jesus style is if we do it like him, through humility, through acts of service, through meekness, through suffering on behalf 
of others through loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. By loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, which means with everything in us, right? Jesus triumphed for God, made his enemy his footstool through obedience, through sacrifice, through service, and through sacrificial love, through suffering, through giving the best of himself on behalf of others. If we want to begin to see the power in our lives, and we do it in the way of Jesus. This is a thrill of hope that he triumphed over in this beautiful way. So the result of Jesus' victory, the result of Jesus' victory leads us to three primary responses. Number one is confidence. We have confidence. Because we know Jesus has triumphed over the enemy, we must live like it. We must live with its reality truly awakened in us. We cannot back down from it. We can't think any other way. We can't live under the illusion of the enemy that God has not had power in our lives. We can't live under this illusion that, that, that fear, anxiety, worry, right? These things of power, of, of lust, right? Of, of the power of wealth. These things, these things do not satisfy. These are not ultimate things. Jesus ultimately is the great victor. Everything is found in him. We must live with that confidence. The enemy has been defeated. The enemy has been defeated, and we have to awaken ourselves and ask God to awaken us to that confidence. A real practical way of looking at this, confidence leads us to worship. And so I would say, ask you this question, would you say your life is marked more by complaining or more by worship? This is a test for your life. And whether or not you live in the confidence of Jesus being Lord and Savior, he says, enter my courts with thanksgiving and praise and offer your request before the Lord. He's saying, he's like saying, hey, listen, you come first in the confidence of knowing that I'm Lord and I'm Savior and I'm King over all things, that you can come and worship because you see that I have everything under control. Complaining does not have to define your life. Does worship or complaining define you? It's a, it is a prime, prime marker of where you are in the, con- in the context of your confidence in Jesus Christ as Savior. The second thing we need to have then, and this leads us to it, is concern. A response for us is concern. Have we bought into the value system of the enemy? Are we overly impressed with traits attributed to him? Are we enamored by wealth, by power and prestige and size and social prominence and political clout, Right. Do we live in a place of celebration or praise or complaint? These things I named are opposed to Christ. We have to live with our eyes awakened with concern. God, I don't want to be bound. Am I even aware of the illusion of the the enemy selling me? God, have I believed a lie and didn't even know it? I can't, listen, this morning my prayer was very simple. God, I can't literally go around every single person and name their illusion. But I'm telling you, every single one of you have an illusion the enemy is selling you today. Every single one of you, me included, <laughs> every single one of us, all right? And we're going to live aware of that. God, I pray that you would awaken me to the illusion, these things that the enemy is selling me. Listen, one of the great lies of our culture is appearance and looks. How much time, women and men, do you spend worrying about your appearance and how you look in your body. God's not, God defeated that, that fear. God defeated 
that lie of the enemy, making you focus on yourself rather than on the beauty found in Christ. It's an illusion. It's not, listen, you can say, well, this is part of our culture. Bull honky. You are part of a biblical culture of Jesus first who sets you free from everything related to hell that makes you focus on yourself and think less of you than Jesus thinks of you. If you think of yourself less than Jesus thinks of you, then you have believed an illusion and a lie straight from the pit of hell. And he has you in chains in that area, and you are literally hindered from the movement of God in that area of your life. And you have bowed down to it. We should be concerned. That's a response. And the third response is concentration. Concentration. All that means, we talked about a couple weeks ago, we work hard. We get the best of ourselves to breaking the power of the enemy, being aware of it, and being released to God in worship and in praise and adoration and receiving love and affection from him so that I can sacrificially give it away to others. I'm diligent. I'm concentrated. We must, we must be the church, living as salt and light, not susceptible to being seduced by the enemy or the values of the enemy. We have to. We have to live diligent, concentrated on not bowing down to the works of the enemy. Jesus has won us the victory. The enemy has been defeated. His power has been broken. His authority has been stripped. But the enemy is is not yet abolished. And John Stott, I mentioned last week, the great evangelical theologian says this. They, or the enemy, have not been abolished, but they have been overthrown. They've not been abolished. He's still moving. He's still stirring. But his authority has been overthrown. The enemy no longer has a right. This is important. He no longer has a right in your life. He no longer is in control. He's been overthrown, but he is not conceded. As in he's not given up, right? It is the tension of the kingdom. It is the tension of the kingdom that that Jesus has come. The kingdom has come, but not yet Fully, And until that moment of, of second advent, the second coming, where Jesus comes riding with, with his robe dipped in blood and his eyes blazing like fire, until that moment of complete release, we live in a world of tension. We live in a world of the only power the enemy has is, is illusion, but he's good at it. And we have to live in confidence of God's victory. We have to live concerned to not fall into it. And we have to live concentrated. I didn't say we live worried, but we are concerned. We are like aware of what's going on, right? We live in this place. The kingdom has come, but not yet fully. And so we have to live in this reality. He has no, the enemy has no authority, no ownership in our life. Satan has no authority or power over us. We have to live aware of his power. For the power of illusion is strong. But we come in worship saying, yes, the power of illusion is strong. That's why God says, Jesus says, beware. Your enemy prowls about like a roaring lion. He doesn't say, pretend like it doesn't exist and don't look. No, he says, be aware. I recognize. I've, I've defeated him. But he's not abolished yet. He hasn't, he's not gone yet. He's still attacking. He's still moving. I want you to be aware but you have authority because I have authority. Live aware of your illusion. Be aware of the place of the work of the enemy because the thrill of hope is that I've come to set you free. The chains have been broken. You no longer have to live bound. I have come in your, and died in your place, and I have come to be the great victor and to set you free 
and to live in a place of worship and of praise as a defining characteristic of your life, not complaining and being overwhelmed with fear, worry, doubt, anxiety, and all of these pieces that the enemy feeds us. Jesus has set you free. And those he sets free, my friends, are free indeed, fully. Let's pray.